Welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. So, Shani, we have one plug, and then I know there's something you want to talk about mm. that's that's very important to you. But we did, with Will's help, an investing course. Mm-hmm. So do you want to say a couple things about the investing course? Yeah, so it's completely free, so you can access it on morningstar.com.au, but we'll also put a link to it in our episode notes. Um, But it is, I think, 10 modules, um, and it's a course based on the foundations of how to invest successfully. Yeah, and it's video, as you can imagine, because we included Will. So for each one of these modules, there's a video. A couple of them have both of us in it. Mm-hmm. But generally, we sort of go back and forth, and it's really a what we call is the foundations of investing. And so it talks a lot about how, well, the things we talk about on this podcast, right? How the most important thing is you and what you're trying to accomplish and how you can set yourself up for success. And, you know, in my case, I certainly have a face for radio or podcasting in this, uh, in this situation. But yeah, you can watch us on, on video. Okay, so should we move on to the more important announcement? Yes. Okay, so um, during the podcast, it's a common theme that Mark and I, um, con- we consume different media. So he, <laughs> he watches very different movies to what I watch. Um, and we talked about my favorite movie, Beef of Vendetta, uh, at the beginning of this podcast uh, when we started doing it. And we got a lot of emails saying that V for Vendetta was not a very good movie and people criticized my choices. Um, But we got a comment over the weekend on one of our old podcasts from somebody that said that no one appreciates the genius of V for Vendetta. So, Well, the first part I agree with, that nobody appreciates it. (laughs) Genius? I I don't know, but, um, but yeah. There's a V for Vendetta fan out there other than you. At least there's one person on my side. Yes. Yes. And not just a fan, someone who describes the movie as genius. Yes. Well, there you go. So should we move on to today's episode? Let's do it. All right. So today we are going to expand a bit on a previous episode we had on critiques of income investing. And that was an interview with Jody Fitzgerald, who used to work for our investment management team, but has since, and very recently, just in the past couple of weeks, moved on from Morningstar. So- I do have a question for you, Shawnee. Do you think that when Jody prepared her resume for her new employer, she put her appearance on Investing Compass right at the top? Um, I really don't think so, Mark. Jody is uh, incredibly qualified. She's had a lot of media appearances apart from being on Investing Compass. I don't think ours would even register. Okay. Well, that's. I guess that's nice, but <laughs> maybe if we can get that whole listen their listeners up in Africa, maybe in the future she'll include it. What do you think? Yeah, I think we should get started. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we are going through four critiques of income investing today, and Mark is going to tell you why he doesn't accept them. Okay. Well, I'm not going to do that. So I do have an opposing point of view, which just happens to be my view. 
But investors can listen to both sides of this and they can decide what they think. Okay, great. So why don't we start with the first critique? And this was a main one that Jodie discussed in the previous episode. She talked about how investors should have a total return focus. So let's start with the basics. What is a total return focus, Mark? Well, dividends are a portion of the returns that investors get from shares. And they're an important one. But of course, the other source of returns is the share price appreciating. Hopefully, hopefully it goes up. And the critique is that if you focus too much on dividends, that will distract you from total returns and you'll end up with less money than you would have. An example is if an investor is captivated by a share paying a 5% dividend. If the investor buys that share and it only appreciates by 2% per year, they could miss out on a share that appreciates 12% a year. The total return would be 7% instead of 12%. What do you think of this argument? Okay, well, I guess not to mince words here, but it just makes absolutely zero sense to me. It implies somehow that an investor can naturally just find a share that earns extremely high returns. And a little bit of a caveat here. Obviously, I don't think an investor should just look at the dividend yield as a sole deciding factor to buy a share. But I also don't think that someone who would do that would be able to carefully analyze another share to find these high returning shares. The other thing that this critique suggests is that dividend-paying shares have lower total returns than non-dividend-paying shares. Not only is there no evidence to suggest that is true, but there's also indications the opposite may be true. Dividend-paying shares have higher returns than non-dividend-paying shares. Okay, so I'm going to go through a study this time because Shani always has to go through the studies, which she has expressed that she does not enjoy. So this is a study by Hartford Funds and Ned Davis Research. So they looked at how dividend policy impacted annual returns and volatility. And the study looked at the S&P 500 between 1973 and 2022, and that is a 50-year time period. So it's a long time. And they divided up the S&P 500 into overall dividend payers and non-dividend payers, And then they broke the dividend payers down into categories. So companies that grew their dividends over that time, companies that kept their dividends at the same level, and companies that cut or eliminated their dividends. So we can start at the high-level category of dividend payers and non-dividend payers. Dividend payers averaged a 9.18% annual return. Non-dividend payers averaged a 3.95% annual return. The S&P 500 overall on an equal-weighted basis has a return of 7.68% a year. Okay, then we can break it down into the categories I mentioned earlier. The companies that grew their dividends earned a return of 10.24% a year. Those that left them the same had a return of 6.60% a year. And those are, of course, both higher returns than the non-dividend payers. Only the dividend cutters or eliminators lagged with a return of 0.60% a year. This survey shows us that the key is to finding shares that grow their dividends. And we will talk a little bit more about that when we get to the tips at the end. But overall, we can say that if an investor is randomly selecting a share, the chances of earning a higher return are based on whether that company pays a dividend or not. Which means that a dividend-paying share does not detract from returns. In fact, it actually does the opposite. So why don't we turn our attention to risk? The way that risk is measured for an investment is volatility. And we've talked about this before, but for many investors, volatility is irrelevant. 
if you're focused on the long term. That year-to-year fluctuation in value matters little. What matters is the return you get over the long term. But for some investors, we do need to acknowledge that volatility matters a lot, especially if you're approaching retirement. So, Shani, how do we measure volatility? There are two main measures that investors use, beta and standard deviation. We can start with beta. Beta measures how much the share price bounces around in relation to the index. The index has a beta of 1, and a share in the index with a beta of higher than 1 means it moves both up and down more than the index. A beta less than 1 moves less than the market. So the non-dividend paying shares had a beta of 1.18. That means that they were almost 20% more volatile than the overall market. The dividend payers had a beta of 0.94, meaning they were less volatile than the overall market. All right, how about the standard deviation? Standard deviation measures the dispersion of returns around the average return. Higher standard deviations mean the average share return is more volatile. A share with a lower standard deviation means it's less volatile. So non-dividend payers had a standard deviation of 22.17%. Dividend payers had a standard deviation of 16.90%. So once again, they are less volatile. And the interesting thing here is that we are getting high returns and less volatility, which is not supposed to happen, but a very positive sign for dividend payers. And if a professional investor tells you that you shouldn't use an income strategy, it is worth asking about this research. And there's some irony because, as you remember from earlier episodes, we periodically measure how professional investors do against the index in our active passive barometer report. And of course, most active professional investors don't beat the index. Only 10% of large cap managers beat their index over a 10-year period in our 2023 report. And the percentage increases in other categories, but no category did even half of the active managers beat the index. And as these numbers attest, picking individual shares is really challenging and not something that is right for every investor. But as I said earlier, if you had come up with the criteria to pick an individual share, a dividend in no way detracts from returns. So why do you think most professional investors make this argument? Well, I think part of it is that professional investors invest differently than the way I invest. And I guess I would advise any investor to invest. Most professionals are very short-term focused. Of course, they say they're long-term focused, but the data says otherwise. So what they're trying to do is to find some short-term catalyst that will potentially cause a share to outperform in the next six months to a year. And the reason they are focused on a catalyst is because most professional investors trade a lot. Chances are they won't own anything they buy for long. A former Morningstar researcher named Michael Lasky did some research and found that the average turnover for an actively managed U.S. equity fund was 63%. And that means every year, more than 63% of the holdings in a fund are new. And it's very hard to do well when this is your approach. And if I was turning my portfolio over so much, I wouldn't care about dividends either. Because what you want as a dividend investor is to have a long holding period so that dividend can grow over the years, which will grow your passive income. And that's a strategy I believe will be much more successful than constantly trading. Well, Mark, we've made it to critique number two. Paying dividends reduces earnings growth. Okay, so let's start with the theory here, Shani. Why do people think that paying dividends reduces earnings growth? The argument is that if a company reinvested the cash in the business to fund growth instead of paying dividends, an investor would ultimately be better off. And 
This is certainly true for some companies. Traditionally, new companies retain all of their cash flows to fund growth. As they mature and growth opportunities dissipate, part of the cash flow is diverted to dividends. A company that operates in an industry with little growth may pay out almost all of their cash flow in dividends. As an investor, you hope the management team running your company makes good decisions on how to spend capital. Some management teams are good stewards of capital and make good decisions on how to allocate it. Some make poor decisions. Poor decisions include making unwise acquisitions, lavish excessive perks, and pay to employees and funding growth projects that earn low returns on the investment. And certainly, I think you should look at the track record of management when considering if you should buy a share. But I think it is also important to look at what stops poor decision-making. And discipline typically comes from having restraints in place. That is why most companies have policies and structural frameworks to govern spending. Another form of discipline is scarcity. My own propensity to spend foolishly is curtailed by not having an unlimited supply of money and, of course, to pay for essentials like my rent. And a company is similar. A dividend imposes discipline through scarcity. A dividend is ultimately a choice, but having an investor base that values dividends is an impediment to reckless spending that puts the dividend in jeopardy. And having a dividend policy that dictates a certain percentage of earnings are paid in dividends further amplifies this discipline. So this is really a trade-off, and investors need to consider which side of the argument makes the most sense to them. Morningstar Investor is built for investors by investors. It provides independent research and data on over 40,000 securities, tools to build and maintain an investment portfolio, and investor education resources to support you, regardless of where you are in your investing journey. Explore opportunities with our monthly global best ideas. Explore our ETF model portfolios. Plan better with two years of dividend forecasts for ASX-listed stocks. And stay informed with independent thought leadership. We've built tools to help you construct, monitor, and maintain your portfolio, including our Portfolio Manager, integrated with one of Australia's leading portfolio tracking tools, ShareSight. Morningstar has been empowering investor success for over 35 years. We're passionate about your outcomes and are here every step of the way as you achieve them. Take out a free four-week trial to access our resources. Find the details in the episode notes. All right, so we're going to do critique number three, Shani. And this one is dividends are inherently inefficient from a tax perspective. And we talk about the two sources of returns, and both dividends and capital gains are taxable events. A dividend and a capital gain is either taxed at an investor's marginal tax rate or at 15% if the assets are in super during the accumulation phase. The difference is that an investor can choose when to sell appreciated shares and realize a capital gain. The tax on a dividend is due when a company decides to pay a dividend. And having the power to determine when a taxable event occurs is, of course, advantageous. An investor could decide to sell shares when they are in a lower marginal tax bracket. The investment is held in super, the investor can wait until they are in pension mode, and there may be no taxes. Another advantage is that there is a discount on long-term capital gains if an investor holds shares for more than a year. These tax benefits to capital gains are offset by the benefits of franking credits for Australian investors who invest in Australian shares. For fully frank dividends, these offsets are significant. And this is undoubtedly an advantage. However, this advantage requires a couple of assumptions. 
Investors sell shares to rebalance a portfolio because there is a better opportunity to invest the funds. Investors also sell shares because they need the money. This may be in retirement to pay for day-to-day life or to fund a purchase. In either way, the investor that needs to sell shares is at the mercy of the current price. Share prices can go through slumps based on temporary issues with an individual company or just overall market sentiment. If an investor needs to sell at an inopportune time, that is also not in the best interest of an investor. It may involve giving up a valuable ownership stake in a company for far less than it is worth in the long run. The other consideration is the fact that while dividends are a taxable event, an investor gets a cash payment and that has value. Nobody would argue that people should quit their jobs because salaries are taxed. A dividend is a tangible way to extract a return from the purchase of a share with an unknown future. For every Google, there are far more Zips and Enrons. I personally hold shares for the long term. and In some cases, I fully recouped my initial investment with dividends. No matter what happens to the share price in the future, at least I've gotten those dividends. We also need to look at how dividends influence total returns. In a theoretical scenario, an investor would likely choose to get the same total return from price appreciation instead of dividends. This theoretical scenario is not real life. In real life, dividend-paying shares have higher returns, and dividends also make up a larger part of our total returns. Over the previous 20 years, as of November 2022, 51% of the total return from the ASX 300 have come from dividends. Okay, so we're on the last critique, Shani, and that is that income strategies require investors to actively manage their portfolios. And in my opinion, this last argument is convoluted. The theory is that everyday investors are not capable of selecting individual shares and trying to pursue an active strategy to generate income leads to poor results. This argument ignores the fact that there are other avenues other than picking individual shares to pursue an income strategy. There are passively managed ETFs and funds that follow an income strategy, and there are actively managed ETFs and funds where the decision-making can be outsourced. Okay, so those are the four critiques, and I guess our response to those critiques. But we did want to talk a little bit about some tips for building an income portfolio. And we've talked about many of these before, and you can go back to our other dividend episodes to hear more detail, but you go for it, Mark. Okay. So I would put our tips into three categories, and those are growth, diversity, and time. To me, those are the three secrets to success from an income perspective. And I wrote an article recently talking about income investing, and I had a reader write in to say that he had built an income portfolio that generated $400,000 annually in passive income, which is absolutely incredible. And while many people may see that number as something that can't be accomplished, it's also a little bit inspiring. So why don't we start with the first tip, Shadi, growth. Many people see growth as the opposite of income investing. There is this notion that while you are younger, your focus should be on trying to grow your portfolio's value. And at some point, you switch to an income approach and just sell what you have and focus on dividend paying shares as you approach retirement. And this is perhaps where the first critique comes from. I just don't agree this is the way an investor should go about things, because it is this notion that when you are young, you shouldn't care about dividends or actively avoid them to try to hit some huge hundred bagger or whatever you're looking for. And then when you switch to dividends, you just buy the highest yielding shares. Exactly. Income investing is not about picking the share with the highest dividend. It is about creating a growing passive income stream over years. And over the long term, the key is to find shares that will grow their dividend, not necessarily the highest yielding share today. 
And the research we mentioned earlier showed that the top performing shares were those that grew their dividends. What is needed to grow a dividend is to grow earnings over time, which means you need to get to know the company, the competitive forces in the industry, and the competitive positioning of the company. So in other words, moats matter because that will lead to higher returns on invested capital and higher margins. This advantage will accrue over time and will result in higher income streams even if the share you buy never has the highest yield. So focus on the fundamentals of the company. To have a sustainable and growing dividend, the company needs not only for earnings to grow, but it needs to convert those earnings into cash and have appropriate debt levels to be able to keep paying the dividend. The next tip is diversification. And when we talk about diversification and income investing, the key is to have multiple sources of income in our portfolio. Have a diverse set of dividend payers in your portfolio, some with higher current yields, some which have low yields but may have high growth and a mix of sectors and countries. And looking at this mix of different sectors and countries may be leaving a bit of yield on the table. If you have income coming from the tech sector, you aren't going to get those high yields right now but the income stream in the future may actually be higher. Same thing with countries. Maybe giving up some yield because of lack of franking credits, but over time you may have higher passive income from your portfolio with a mix of Aussie companies with franking credits and global companies that don't have them. And all of this relates to the last tip, which is time. Compounding is a powerful tool in an investor's arsenal. We always talk about compounding when it comes to account balances, but it, is, but it works with income as well. Compound your income through dividend growth and reinvesting the income you receive to get more income. But the key here is to stay in, stay invested through ups and downs in the market and just keep earning those dividends. And while that example we used of the $400,000 in passive income may seem completely out of reach, and it may be for some investors, but if you keep compounding that income you earn, perhaps you can get there or to a level that you're looking to achieve. Warren Buffett famously described compounding as a snowball rolling down a hill that gathers more and more snow as it goes, so it grows larger and larger. And in the beginning, that growth may seem inconsequential. Perhaps each month you're growing your income by an amount that translates into a simple day-to-day expense like a lunch that you buy. And you may think, who cares? This is a waste of time. But over time, those same percentage changes will be larger and larger in dollar terms. Soon it isn't just a lunch you're growing your income by, it's a weekend away each year. Then maybe it grows to a week away on vacation. Keep at it through thick and thin, just slowly keep adding to the income, and after years and decades, you'll be amazed at where you end up. And where we've ended up right now is the end of the episode. So thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate it. As always, we love your comments and questions. You can put those in the podcast app like the V for Vendetta person did, or you can email me. My email address is in the show notes. And finally, if you have any questions or want to get to that investing course, please just let me know and I'll send that to you. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.